The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. morning, everyone. We're going to be on page 27 if you'd like to join in for the chanting. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Maybe some of you recognize this in your own life, especially those of you maybe who have raised children. But, uh, you know, it's interesting how if it's if we're just dealing with our own life, just responsible for our own life, it's sort of interesting how we may be more willing to let our life kind of get run into the ground or nothing matters or... But when we feel like like it or not, we're models or other people are looking up to us or dependent on us. It's in a way we take care of our life better. And we have, uh, it's not easy for us humans to take a a long-term view of things, like not just this week, but years and years out. I'm reading this very interesting book called Overstory. Maybe some of you read it. It's really a beautiful book. But uh, one of the interesting things in the chapter I've just finished is this woman botanist runs into some other researchers and they're sort of rogue researchers in kind of forestry, botany area of science. Um, And part of what makes them rogue is they're doing experiments that take hundreds of years, right? So they're like not going to be able to write their journal article and get their tenured academic position but they're really doing it for the, you know, really for the forests, for the earth, for future beings on the planet, right? And uh, so when we have that perspective, what's interesting is to notice how we make different kinds of choices. When we feel like my life, the choices I make, the values I cultivate, that it's not so much about like me getting payback from the difficult choices I'm making, but generations or creatures or who knows what will benefit forever, right? Then all of a sudden it matters how much toothpaste I put on the toothbrush or, you know, how I interact with another human being, whether I actually show up for the interaction or I'm just on autopilot these little acts of generosity and integrity really begin to matter because of that vast, uh, both broad and deep perspective. It kind of changes who we are in the world. And this chant is really a way of getting at that shift in perspective where we're, it's really about, I mean, it's a traditional, it may feel a little odd just because it comes out of, you know, Asian view of things, Buddhist, Asian views of things. So it has sort of its own cultural history, this chant. But the idea is to break the heart, the mind free of like, well, what's in it for me? 
what's in it for me, in, in a very short-term way. Like, I'm just trying to feel good today, right now. So I'm not that interested in this week, let alone generations from now. You know, it's just not on my radar screen. But that switch can happen. I mean, our mind, our heart is capable of having that deeper, wider perspective. So let's do this chant on page 27 together. Just listen to the sound of the bell to begin. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, May those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice, and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease, and all harmful states of mind, until I realize Nibbana, in every kind of birth, may I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve, the Buddha is my excellent refuge. Is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion dispel.
Nice to be here today. Yeah, Lewis? Do you have something to say already? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's touching for me. And, you know, the, the Dharma, the way the Buddha taught, he didn't talk so much about the positive side of the dropping of our sense of isolation or sense of separateness, right? He was really more about the technology, the inner psychological technology of abandoning separateness and isolation. One of my teachers calls this the mythologies of isolation that we live with, right? And because we can get from the point of view of me feeling apart, I can get very fundamentalist around ideas of wholeness. But then it's like I have a problem with your ideas of wholeness, right? Because it's not my experience of abandoning separateness. It's really feeling the pain of being separate. I cling to ideas of wholeness. And so the, the path really has to be how do we touch in, open up to a mind, a heart, being in the world without separateness, without isolation, right? Because then we don't need words. We don't need to call it something. I mean, we do when we talk with friends and when we share our experience, but it's never about the words, like the Zen story that's so funny, but so really points uh, points to this, right? So the finger pointing to the moon, some of you know this image, right? And people get fixated on the finger, just like you can get fixated on one of those beautiful cathedrals in Europe, or you can get fixated when you go to Asia at some of the amazing Buddha stupas and think it's about the sacredness of this architectural thing. Or even the teachings can be so philosophically elegant but it's never about the elegance of the teachings or the you know grandeur of the form the architectural form or even how many people like are devoted to this particular way of practice or whatever it's really about the heart the mind abandoning its mythologies of isolation like what is this mind heart when it's not bound up in one way or another and so what the Buddha offers, and you know other spiritual tra- traditions as well, but what the Buddha offers is a set of skillful means, we call them in the tradition, right, of how to step out of this very deep, these very deep habits of being attached, identified with the mythologies of isolation, right? There's just different patterns of, being apart, being separate. Because any kind of fear, any kind of anger, any kind of lust and greed comes out of one of those mythologies of isolation being apart. When I really feel apart from the world, then I'm very desperate for sense pleasures. Because that feeling of being apart, being separate, is a very unpleasant feeling. So I really need popcorn with a lot of butter on it. Or I really need a funny TV show. 
to kind of mask the unpleasant feeling of alienation and feeling apart and feeling like nothing matters or whatever that feeling of isolation is. So we get, human beings, we get addicted to consumerism precisely because we haven't had ways to do the spiritual work we're all born to do, really. And then that, then the consumerism has so many other reverberations, like the destruction of the world and the oppression of people and oppression of other species on the planet, right? That just is the natural playing out of greed. And the greed is there because we don't feel alive. And we don't feel alive because we're addicted to our ideas of separation and being apart. So part of, I mean, the real point, as difficult as it is, of being present is it's a direct challenge. But it's not like a cognitive challenge to our ideas. It's really a roundabout, I mean, it's a very clever way to step out of our ideas of separation. So like when we open to the body or when we open to hearing, something very simple, right? There's always this dance of sensations in our body or this activity of hearing, seeing, you know, these very concrete or very available phenomena in our present moment experience. When we've trained, when we're training our heart to be interested, not interested in figuring out what is my body feeling, but interested in being intimate, fearlessly present with the bodily experience with the experience of hearing, with the experience of being in the moment, right? Then the mind has to drop. See, the experience of isolation is a construction. It's a construction of our thinking mind. All that spiritual alienation, all that existential angst that we really think that's who I am, it's, I mean, in a way, in that bubble, that is who we are. But it's, a construction, a bubble we live inside of. And there's a very clever, this is, you know, not just the Buddha, but the Buddha really articulated this spiritual move, which is just get really, really intimate in the present moment. Find something your heart, your mind is willing to be intimate with. Undefended, undefended, right? Just be present with. And then the, the mind's fixation on its ideas of separateness, which is very subtle and ongoing, so we have to respect how deep and pervasive that habit is. But you could be really present with knitting or really present observing the birds at the bird feeder or walking to a meadow or playing some music I mean, these are often when we talk about our early spiritual experiences, this is what people point to, just some moment where their heart was so full, so present, radically present, that they dropped their ideas of self, of separation. And they think, you know, we tend to, after the fact, think it must have been that, that those woods were sacred. But it wasn't that the woods were sacred, it's that the mind was interested enough, present enough, 
that there was no room in that mind to construct a sense of me. This is happening to me. And so the person gets a little insight, a little mystical experience, we'd say, from other spiritual traditions, right? But from the Buddhist point of view, it's just the heart or the mind seeing things as they actually are. Because separateness is a temporary construction, but it's become such a deep habit in the mind that that sense of separation, that sense of being apart, that sense of being existentially afraid or existentially needy, it just gets reconstructed over and over again. It is the ongoing activity of cognition of the thinking mind. And it's so omnipresent as a habit that it goes unseen. Not because it can't be seen, but it's just as so pervasive. It's like we you know, always say, fish don't know about water because they've never had, they've never known some way to con- contrast the experience of water. And that selfing, that self-drama is so pervasive, we have no way of noticing it until we start having some of these healing experiences of just being in the flow of the moment. And then we really notice how tight it is when we're back in our ordinary state. And that makes the mind very curious. So when we start having insight, so-called spiritual experiences of unity, of non-separateness, whatever the mechanism was that supported that experience, that's not enough. Because if that's all you have, then when you get back in your ordinary frame as a self, you're going to want to build a religion. You're going to want to convince people that you're special, (laughs) that you've had that experience. So the key is, like what the Buddha says, is to really notice as you get back in your habit of selfing how oppressive a space it is to be afraid again, to be needy again, to be controlling again, to want to close down again because it's too much, feeling overwhelmed by the meanness in life, the injustice in life. But somehow thinking that numbness or being closed down is an appropriate strategy for being alive. Then we know we're back in the delusion. And that's okay, because when we're there, that's what we need to see. This isn't it. I don't know what it is, but I know this isn't the way, because I have some leftover fragrance from being free, from being non-oppressed. So I don't know much, like a lot of spiritual humility, but I know this is suffering. So that's actually an insight, to know suffering. Because most human beings don't aren't aware how oppressive our ordinary way of being in the world is. So we take that, what did the, was it Freud who says our, oh, somebody remember the phrase? Uh, yeah, but it's, it's basically that, but it's... Uh, kind of ordinary, you know, ordinary level of neurosis or ordinary level of being tight. We're happy when we get, what makes us happy is feeling somewhat, uh, pretending that we're competent and getting more happiness than other people. This is like a real sign of how, because when we look at that, because that's actually true, and they've done a lot of psychological exper- experiments where it's not about how much easier it is. Do we have more ease than we imagine other people? 
And then because we feel like we're on the top half of the heap, it's like, okay, I have, I'm doing pretty good. This is all I can expect from life is to be doing better than others. And then we know how sick, I mean, that's like a window, like back to this insight, like, okay, this cannot be it. Whatever this is, the way I'm living, the kind of normal frames, states of heart and mind, this isn't it. And then we, we get curious about teachings that may point or we get even interested in our own personal experiences. And this happened like even the Buddha who because of the culture that he was raised in, when he decided that just living with a lot of affluence and a lot of privilege wasn't an end in itself, right? So he left behind a pretty good situation in terms of basic human comfort and went off as a spiritual seeker. And because of the culture of the spiritual teachings of the time, asceticism was really in. Like, okay, if once we see, once we detect that um, indulging, having a lot of privilege, having more than others, isn't really going to make us happy in the end, then it seems pretty obvious that, okay, the way forward is to give up on life, to give up on comfort, to give up on things that are satisfying and gratifying because they don't deliver in the end. It's only a temporary pleasantness. So like a lot of the people at the time, he was really into asceticism and to the extreme, right? He was like, I got to be more ascetic than other people in order to get to the top of the heap. So he says that, you know, whatever other people did, I did more. Nobody did it more than me, right? The asceticism stuff. And in that, you know, and as he was beginning to intuit that this was also a dead end, you know, asceticism, like, okay, I'm a sensitive human being, but I'm not going to enjoy it. Because I'm, because I'm afraid if I enjoy it, I'll think that's an end in itself, right? So it, it, there's a little logic to it, but it, in taken to the extreme, it just doesn't make sense. It's just like self-hatred in a way. And then he had a memory as a child, when he was like four or five or so. And just uh, it was some festival day and his dad and parents were sort of the important folks in the community and they put the child, a sort of special princely kid, you know, in a nice pleasant place under a beautiful tree and maybe there was music and feasts to come. and, And his mind, because it was so pleasant, right, his mind just sort of, got absorbed in the wholesome pleasantness of everybody being happy. And the mind really settled into this beautiful state we call like concentration or absorption or settle, deep settledness. Where the, because the pleasure was so strong in the moment, the mind wasn't doing its normal neurotic seeking for pleasantness, seeking to get rid of unpleasantness, Right. It was so, when we're so full, like when we see a beautiful sunset or we're getting a beautiful hug from somebody we love and who loves us, right? We momentarily drop being a neurotic human being for a few seconds. Well, this was just a slightly more profound period of dropping. And now the Buddha, you know, 30 years later is remembering this time as a child. And then the thought arises, do I need to be afraid of ordinary healing pleasure that comes in life? 
right? The, the pleasure that comes with the heart not seeking or needing the moment to be different than it is. That's called contentment, right? When the heart feels safe and content, then it's willing for moments and with practice, more moments, more continuity, to drop being a needy, fearful, controlling, neurotic human being. And the Buddha thought, no, no, this is, there's something about that experience as a child that's really relevant to fine-tuning my own spiritual path right now. And he was a pretty sophisticated spiritual seeker at this point. I mean, banging his head against a certain wall, like thinking that asceticism was the way, but still had known quite a bit about his mind, had really done a lot of sort of mind control spiritual practices. But then he really understood like how to make peace with being a sensitive, embodied human being. Like, and so the, the next part of the story, you know, just as a teaching story, if nothing else, is a local person, <coughs> like a herder or something like that, somebody herding animals, because he was a little bit out in the woods, saw him and offered him a delicious dish. I mean, uh, traditionally it's that some of you who've been to India or even at Indian restaurants, you know, the sugar and rice and cream and usually like raisins or, right, so a kind of a rice pudding. And you can imagine somebody who had been doing extreme ascetic practices, fasting practices, being offered this food. And he really allowed his body, mind, heart to come back into balance. Because now he had a different approach, not trying to fight, thinking that being embodied is a problem, being sensitive, knowing the difference between pleasure and pain is a problem because I'm vulnerable to being seduced by pleasure, vulnerable to being oppressed by pain. Right? Kind of like thinking, if only I weren't a human being, then as a human being, I'd be happy. You know, it's just like a real... So what does freedom look like when we're embodied? What does that look like? And so it really was this development of understanding. Letting nature be nature. Understanding that the body, the sensitivity of the body, even the thinking mind, that all of this is just nature. And maybe nature knows how to take care of itself. Like Lewis was saying, you know, there's some intuition we have that as messy as the world is, that somehow it's trustworthy. Right? That whatever this is as a totality, as a whole, like this is, a, some of you know this from kind of our popular culture, but before he died, Albert Einstein was asked, uh, is, uh, what's the most important unanswered question about the universe? I mean, I can imagine as a journalist, if I were a journalist, asking that question, I would like to know. Like, but the journalist probably thought he'd answer from a point of view of physics, you know, like what are physis physicists working on now back then in the 50s or whenever it was. And his answer was much more spiritual. He said, the only relevant question is, is the universe a friendly place? 
like, is it as a, just as an individual exploring spiritual truth, like that's right here, omnipresent right here, should we approach our predicament as a human being as if the universe, as if the present moment is safe? Is it safe for my heart, for my mind, for my body to relax, to put down defense? Or do I need to defend myself? Is it a war that I'm trying to win my life? Is it a struggle? And that's a really relevant question, and it really actually is very pragmatic in terms of our meditation practice. This is not this would be very useful actually to bring to mind right at the beginning of a sit. Am I approaching my sit as if I have a wild, disgusting beast that I need to learn how to control here? You know, my bad habits of mind that want to think lustful thoughts or think, you know, about winning the lottery or, you know, getting rid of the things that dis- that bother me in my life if only my boss weren't my boss, or something like that. Because, I mean, we can do that when we're sitting, just sort of vent and complain and, you know, want to disappear, want to get out of here. Basically, in a more subtle way, acting out hatred and greed. And that's what, we, that's what would make sense if the world was this terrible beast and for some strange reason, we were born in it and we've just got to fight and scratch and try to get to the top of the heap and get more at least than other people get from life. So then we feel good about ourselves. At least I'm not one of those miserable people, you know. It's funny, but it's really true. They, there was this Harvard experiment where they, around money, you know, and they said, okay, you can have, I forget exactly the numbers, but, you know, you can have $100,000 a year but everybody else is going to be earning the same. Or you can earn $50,000 a year and everybody else is earning 25000 What would you prefer? Now, we, because you, you know, you, you've gotten this context, we know what we're going to say. You know, let's all earn 100000 But it's interesting that most people wanted to be relatively better off. And I thought, well, that's good that people are being honest because I think that's actually true. It's not about actual comfort. It's about, you know, there's nothing better than, I mean, this may be more sort of patriarchy and, and kind of maleness, you know, this competitive, this idea of sort of getting to the top. But it's, it's actually, I think, culturally pretty pervasive about wanting to be better off. And, and a kind of fear of sameness, at least in the West. I'm not, you know, I can't speak for other cultures so much. And, you know, there's different ways to distinguish yourself. Like uh, we've all passed through, m- most of us have passed through this sort of rebellious state that like what makes us special is not needing to be special like everyone else, right? <laughs> and that's its own getting to the top of the heap. So just because you don't, want to live in the suburbs or, you know, have a big house or whatever, doesn't mean you're not in the same trap. You can do this around, like, I don't use plastic bags anymore, right? <laughs> Try that. <laughs> Actually, we're just, that's just aspirational. 
We're hoping to become people who don't use plastic bags. <laughs> and when I do, you can bet I'll, you know, let you know about it. <laughs> and all those other ways that we kind of want to differentiate ourselves as being better, different, not part of the grubby human masses that, you know, don't know any better or just are plain, plain stupid or plain bad or less than, right? Now, we don't say that out loud because it's not politically correct, but that's a pervasive, those attitudes are quite pervasive. Even if you're, you know, if you're one of the unfortunate ones who maybe don't have a lot of money, but then we demonize the people that do in some way. So there's any number of ways that we play this out in our minds. Or we hate ourselves, right? So even if we putting other people up, we're still in the same game. You know, in general, we call that dualistic thinking, good and bad. It's my, a mind that's fixed on good and bad. So when someone like Lewis brings up the point that he did, which is just this, it's not, it's not just with Native people, Indigenous people. It's just any human being that has had enough space in their lives to be reflective, deeply reflective. Again, another point from this book I've been reading, Overstory, is like the, these rogue, radical foresters and botanists. They're really realizing that like science really has to change this perspective of how we look, how we study, and the kind of patience that's required. And it really lines up with the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings about, like, we don't talk about it as much as we should, but it's, we really need patience. This is related to the continuity of present moment awareness. Because it's pretty remarkable when there's even a moment of really being present. But things don't really change until that's sustained. It's really developing the lifestyle of being present. That that value of being present is the highest or deepest value in our hearts. Everything else we can still care about, but it, and it will naturally flow better from being present as the top value, being intimate as the top value. But really this sort of ongoingness is really what we're moving toward. And it really, like, it shifts us away from our individual dramas. You see, it's like, no, 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 because from a self point of view, being comfortable now is like really front and center. But when I take a long, like a long-term view is really a, an anathema to self-view. I mean, you can have self-view that's sort of in it for the long haul, but it's a lot easier to be self-centered with a short-term perspective. Pleasure now really matters to me, solving this problem now. But, being, but like really being like dealing with social injustice, racial injustice, economic injustice, environmental injustice, but like in it for the long haul, like doing the real foundational work, planting the seeds that are going to lead to undeniable change, but maybe a few generations out. Like that, 
that no one's going to know I did that work. <laughs> you know, it won't make, I won't get the plaque that's, that kind of correlates me planting those seeds with the goodness that's in me. So that's why it's so, it's a different way of being in the world. It's like people who plant, like we thought about this, some of you recognize our beautiful oak tree. I forget which particular kind of oak it is, if it's a pin oak. But anyway, we decided when we bought this building in 2006, and I don't know if you know, but there was no garden around the building. It was all asphalt. And so we got, um, raised some money. We spent, besides the building and the renovation, we spent about $120,000 to just do the, renovate the parking lot, put in the rain gardens, plant those trees. And we decided, okay, we should plant a Bodhi tree. Right? So the Buddha had his awakening under a beautiful bow tree, evidently one of those um, uh, banyan-type trees. But anyway... Um, we thought, well, what's a native tree here? And it was very interesting to plant a tree that's so slow growing. So now it's been there 10 years, maybe 11 years, and it's like starting to look like it's owning its place in the garden. Take a look on when you walk out. And it's going to be one of those beautiful, I mean, it already is, but it's really growing into one of those mother, mother trees, grandmother trees. And it's sort of a beautiful thing. It's also what Corey, who's here today, over there, who's our construction manager, you know, it's like we're spending, we, that means all of us, you know, we've, we're, we're close to $600,000 into our retreat property out in Prairie Farm. We're kind of in the middle of this big renovation. And uh, we're building this for generations. I mean, hopefully people in the room will get out there and practice, but it's really... When you think about who's going to use it, it's really for children of children of children. This place, 83 miles out of town, that we're developing in western Wisconsin. And the same with this building when we do you know, take care of it. We're not just trying to get through the week or through this year. Like when we renovated this building, you know, we really took out all the sheetrock, all the floors, all the subfloors all the insulation. I mean, we started all the stucco. We started from scratch with this building because it was a dirty, uh, old, uh, greasy restaurant. It was really a mess. So it made, I mean, we didn't really have any choice. But we really built it for the long haul. Now, can we have that same attitude when we're taking care of our heart and mind? So what way of relating to my mind, what way of relating to the present moment, what way of re- relating to the people I'm around right now would be planting seeds that are not only feel good right now, but feel good, will feel good in a decade, in a hundred years, in a thousand years, like whatever the progeny of these little seeds that we're planting. And remember, seeds can be really, really small, but they can lead to amazing things. And that's what's that metaphor of seeds is really potent when we think about whether we're conscious of it or not we're planting seeds even like the seeds of boredom so we get really good at being bored like is that what we want is that all we can hope for no as opposed to just planting a little seed of being slightly less defended right now slightly 
more patient, less in a hurry to whatever's next. You know, slightly more integration, the body and the mind right now, like really owning the experience of embodiment in a more full way. Oh yeah, belly's like this. Shoulders are like this. Jaw, mouth, teeth like this. Blood pumping like this. Electric nervous system like this. Right, That intimacy, that's a little seed that's being planted, being real as opposed to being disconnected. So thanks for setting this in motion, <laughs> Lewis, with your comments. Really useful. Yeah, Tom. Oh, maybe wait for the mic, though. We have a few minutes before the children come in. Oh, yeah, no children. So we have about five minutes. I don't know if you uh, heard the other day on Terry Gross. This was a week ago, last Tuesday. She had a primatologist on there, and he was talking about work with the capuchin monkeys. And in the world of capuchin monkeys, cucumbers are okay, but grapes are really good. Okay, So they would get them to do a task and feed them a cucumber. And they were put in cages so they could observe one another, two different monkeys. And they were happy to get the cucumbers. And they would do this for like 50 times, no trouble. And then they started giving them grapes. Oh, now they're really happy because they love the grapes. And they would do the trick every time, every time, every time. And then they pulled the trick on them. They gave one monkey a cucumber and the other monkey a grape. And the monkey got the cucumber and <laughs> didn't want this, you know. And he got really upset. And um, maybe I should tell you that the primatologist is studying, you know, injustice in primates and particularly in humans. And uh, the, the monkey got the cucumber, didn't like that. And every time he'd just get upset and throw it down. And pretty soon, the monkey that got the grape threw it down. He said, if, if he's not getting the grape, I'm not getting the grape. Mm. So I just thought that was kind of interesting when we're talking about trying to be on top of the heap. Yeah. And, and one of the interesting phenomena here, I'm assuming, is they couldn't avoid seeing each other. No, they, they could see. <laughs> but, but when we train ourselves to be complicit by being unaware, then it can go on for a long time. <laughs> so white folks <laughs> and elites, this is what we have to train ourselves, like to be aware, to feel. Yeah, time for maybe one last comment. Oh, somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, wanted to share a brief thought that I had when you were talking about um, planting seeds for future generations that it brought to mind an experience I had in Sichuan province in a Tibetan area. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> And much of the forest in that area had been deforested, actually. They had had terrible floods there. And as I was leaving that area, <clears throat> I drove with the people I was with 
to a monastery. And 600 years previous, the abbot of that monastery had said, you cannot cut these trees. And over time, no one had done that. And so it was amazing to come out of this area that had been so changed into this space where the seeds had been planted for future generations. Yeah. Well, these are wonderful inspirations. Let's just sit together for a few seconds and let go of the words. Pass that back to Scott. Just enjoy the silence for a couple breaths. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.